Let's pray for a moment. Father, you have already been saying so much to us. You've already been communicating weighty, important, eternal kinds of matters. And uh, we just have to confess that we're not always prepared to hear and certainly to respond to all that you are stirring in us. So we pray. Give us ears to hear. Give us minds to comprehend. Give us hearts that are responsive to all that you are about in these moments with us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, buenos dias, amigos. Um, I'm really glad to be back. Uh, Some of you didn't even know I was gone. But uh, I got in last night from a week in Nicaragua. And uh, I'll be telling you a little bit more about my experiences there and uh, the services to God and to people that we were rendering. So uh, over the next couple of days, check out my blog, and uh, I'll uh, say a few things to you about it and give you some updates on that. I am grateful that in my absence we had Dr. Bill Cruz speak and teach here. Uh, If you missed that, he is the executive director of the Northwest Convention that we are a part of. He is uh, an outstanding statesman for what's happening in the mission of the church. And uh, it's a rare opportunity for us to be able to hear him and to be with him and to know him. Uh, And so I hope that you enjoyed that and I hope that was meaningful to you. Um, We are continuing our journey through the Bible. How's that going for you? Is it going okay? You say, I'm already behind. That's okay. Uh, I don't know anybody that doesn't get behind at some point. Uh, Just... Keep on with what you're doing, or if you need to skip and, get, and catch up and then go back and do some reading at another time, whatever works for you. But uh, I think you'll find it most profitable that if you are significantly behind right now, that you just go ahead and jump to today and begin the readings of this week, because that's what we're going to talk about over the next few minutes. If you're new to Meadowbrook and uh, you don't know what's going on, you'll see in the program a reference to uh, our Read Through the Bible effort Uh, We're looking to do that across 2012, and we will have eventually read through every verse of every chapter of every book of the Bible by the end of the year. And I'm going to be teaching uh, according to the readings of a given week that you're going to have week by week. And uh, we have a reading plan that will help you to do that in bite-sized pieces. And that's on our website. So go to our website, get the reading plan, get some other tools that will help you to understand what you're reading and so on like that. And we hope you'll find a a meaningful experience with us in that. In a moment, I'm going to be reading from Exodus chapter 3, second book of the Bible, third chapter of that book. And we begin a new series of thoughts over these next few weeks that I would put under the heading of, Will People Believe? Will people believe? And specifically, Uh, How does God help us with belief through his mighty acts, through his work that delivers us from things that captivate and enslave us? So um, as we begin to think about today's topic, let's do just a quick reminder. Here's where we've been since the first of the year. We were introduced or reminded 
about how great God is. Specifically, that was uh, encapsulated in the idea of his being creator. And we were reminded out of the billions of galaxies there are in this universe, each one having hundreds of billions of stars and solar systems in all of these galaxies, he was the great creator of all that. Now, we create sometimes. But when we create, we always create something with something, right? We get some clay and we create a vase or whatever. But God is so great, he creates something with nothing. And so all that is a part of this universe, all that's a part of this world, all that is a part of life, he was able to create out of nothing. And we were reminded about his greatness. And then we were introduced or reminded uh, to his sovereignty. He is not just this great God out there, transcendent, creating and then abdicating and, okay, hope it works out for you. But he is intimately involved in the lives of people and the circumstances that we experience day by day. He chooses a man named Abram and calls him to follow him in such a way that he would become the father of a great nation. He chooses a man named Joseph, the son of Jacob, and works through a variety of circumstances to place him in Egypt. So at some point when Abraham's descendants are uh, near death and famine, they can be rescued. They can be saved by moving to Egypt where Joseph will be in a position to be able to take care of them. So on and so on we can go as we uh, see the sovereignty of God. And then we were exposed to or reminded of that God rules not just in this seen, tangible world that we're a part of, but in the unseen world. There is an entire world all around us that is unseen, that is spiritual, that has messengers and uh, angels, if you will, that do his bidding, that have uh, uh, evil presence through demons and a sinister accuser called Satan. And that God rules and reigns over all of that. And sometimes he draws us into that drama for purposes that serve time and eternity to his glory. And particularly in the book of Job, we unpacked some of that. Um, it brings us to a fork in the road. Will you go in a direction of belief? Or will you go in a direction of unbelief? Will you begin to risk having faith that all of this is true? Or will you say, no, it's just too much for me. I can't go there. It's up to you. But God wants to help if you're inclined to go down the fork of the road of belief. I remember when uh, I was a kid growing up that uh, I would sometimes go to a youth group in a nearby church. And uh, several of the kids were already into following Christ and knowing Christ and doing life with Christ. And I was a relatively unchurched youth. And so all of that kind of stuff was new to me. And I was asking questions that they didn't ask because they were raised in Christian families that, that went to church. And a lot of it had just been kind of absorbed along the way that was foreign to me. And so I was interested to know, are there good reasons to believe in God? Are there good reasons to bet your life on him 
and yield and commit your life to him. And I remember several of my friends had uh, a poster in their bedroom on the wall that basically uh, was kind of the sunset looking deal with a man in silhouette standing at the edge of a cliff. And there was a caption at the bottom of the poster that went something like this. Faith is walking as far as you can see and then taking one more step. And there was something interesting to me about that idea, but it just never quite settled well with me. And, of course, it lends itself to the whole notion that faith is about taking some kind of leap, taking some kind of step into the unknown. And when I became a Christ follower and soon thereafter, I began to sense God's call on my life to be a minister. And I began to train and to prepare and to study to do that. I began to understand why that never settled very well with me, because the poster has it totally wrong. Faith is not a step into the dark or a leap into the unknown. Faith is a step into the light. It is a leap into something that God reveals to you and shows you. He doesn't ask you to take blind bets. He's invested in disclosing himself and his activity to us in ways that can build faith. That can be a foundation to faith. And what we will discover in the book of Exodus is that is exactly what he was about in the lives of those ancient Hebrews. So our context for what we're talking about today and the readings of this coming week are the context of the historical event in the lives of the Hebrews, the the forming nation of Israel, that is referred to as the Exodus which is arguably the most important defining experience in in the history and in the lives of Jews. And I would add, uh, it is that defining, it is that important in the lives of Christians. Next to the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus, I would say the exodus follows that in importance to us. And so I, I can't overstate how uh, meaningful and foundational your readings this week will be to all of your faith in knowing Christ and following Christ. And uh, as you're leaping into all of that, I hope it's a meaningful ride for you. Now, let let me just kind of walk us through some of what you're going to experience without trying to steal much of the thunder of what you'll read. And I know that many of you have already gone through this kind of thing before, and so it's more reminder than introduction. But as we start off, And remember, we're talking about God trying to build and develop faith in us. He gives us some examples. So from the time of Abraham to the time of the Exodus, 600 years have passed. You have to recall that, okay? I mean, that's like more than twice the length of American history. That's a long time. And when we got introduced uh, near the end of Genesis to Joseph the son of Jacob, who through the sovereignty of God ends up in Egypt and becomes a powerful figure who then can provide for the rescue, the saving of the lives of the Jews. 
He moves them into Egypt. And there he provides for them through this time of famine. And there they are able to grow and to multiply, which we begin to understand God was about all the time. He wants the descendants of Abraham to become a great nation that can multiply into great numbers of people that will know him in a covenant relationship and do life with him in a fellowship. And while they are in Egypt, they are multiplying. They have the favor of God upon them. Uh, They have the favor of the Egyptians and things are going well for a long time. And then year after year after year after year, you get farther and farther and farther away from the time of Joseph. So that the book of Exodus begins by telling us we come into a time where there is a Pharaoh or a king who knows not Joseph. Doesn't have any real memory of Joseph, doesn't have any real esteem of Joseph. And, And by the way, he's becoming nervous about how many Jews there are now. Some scholars have estimated there are about 2 million Jews at this point in history living in Egypt. That's a lot of immigrants in your country that you can get nervous about. You know, what are they going to do to my economy? What are they going to do about to the well-being of my people, etc.? So he begins to enact a program of oppression and slavery. And... Uh, The Hebrews had a very, very hard time for a long time. And they are about making bricks and and creating these great edifices to the glory of the Pharaoh, etc., etc. It goes on for a long time. But they continue to multiply. And so he comes up with this scheme to stop the multiplication of the Hebrews. And he orders the midwives who help in the delivery of the babies. Every time a baby is born and you see it's a male... Kill it. And thus, you know, we'll stop this multiplication of the Hebrew people. Well, the midwives, we're told in these early chapters of Exodus, believed God and therefore would not obey Pharaoh. And when the babies were born and they saw that they were male, they didn't kill them. And when Pharaoh began to discover that male babies were not being killed, he you know, calls the midwives in and says, what's happening here? I gave you an order. And they were like, well, these Hebrew women, man, when they deliver, they deliver fast. And they get these children delivered before we can even get there. So, you know, it's kind of out of our hands. Second example. During this time, there's a mother and a father who are about to give birth, and they do, and it's a boy. And the the text says when they see this child, the old word is they perceived he was beautiful. Meaning they could tell that God was interested and involved with this child. That God had some purpose for this child. And so they would not obey the Pharaoh. They would not kill this son. But instead, by faith, they take this boy, this baby boy, and put him in a basket and put him out into the Nile River. Not the most safe option. But what we are to understand is that they are believing by that action God is going to uh, do something with and around that baby so that God's purposes and sovereign plans are carried out. You say, well, how do you know all that? Because I've already read that and I didn't see all that in there. By the way they named the child. And, of course, we're talking about Moses. And we're going to say more about this, but the Hebrew notion of names is way more profound and significant than it is in our culture. 
And so they named the child Moses, which means to be drawn out of the water. They absolutely believed that God was going to draw this child out of the water and then see to circumstances that would uh, be about his future. And you know the story. Um, One of the servants of Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, sees the basket going down with the current. She's there with other attendants bathing or whatever alongside the shore. The servant brings the basket over to the princess. The princess opens up the basket. There's the baby Moses. She is captivated with the baby and decides she wants to raise the baby for herself. Only she needs help with this. Uh, and so she orders that uh, someone find a Hebrew woman who can nurse the baby and be like a nanny to the baby. And, of course, unknowing to her, uh, Moses' mother is the one selected. And so Moses' mother is raising her own child in Pharaoh's house where he is being groomed as a prince of Egypt. These are faith builders, faith examples. See how the hand of God works. You can almost, as you're reading line after line, hear between the lines, will you believe? Will you believe? Well, we come to a point in the story where Moses is a young man, and uh, he finds it necessary to have to flee Egypt. He goes out into the backside of the Midian Desert, and there he meets up with the family of a guy named Jethro. He eventually marries one of Jethro's daughters. He has become a nomadic shepherd-type guy from Pharaoh's palace to the desert. But he makes a life for himself out there. And after some period of time, one day he's out working the field and the sheep, the flocks, and he sees this bush burning but not being consumed. He draws near, and God begins to speak to him. And God begins to unfold the plan to him. And notice what God says. God says that I have heard the cries of my people. And I have remembered my covenant with them. Now see, these are not throwaway lines in the story. These are crucial because these are revelatory of who God is and what God's like. What kind of God am I encountering out here in the wilderness next to this bush? A covenant-keeping God. A God who will keep His promises. And then God goes on to say to Moses... And I'm going to deliver them, and I'm going to use you to do that. I want you to go and tell Pharaoh, set my people free. Well, now Moses is way more acquainted with the household of Pharaoh than he is with God. He's way more acquainted with the power of the Pharaoh and the power of Egypt than he is with God. And so... Whether he had a stuttering problem before this moment or he developed it right in the moment, he's like, God, God, I can't do this. You ever been there? I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. Moses, what's that in your hand? My staff? Stick, you know, that you work the flock with? Throw it down. He throws it down, and it becomes a snake. Well, I'd have been freaked at that moment. But what's even more freaky, then he says, now pick it up. 
I'm with you throwing it down. I'm not with you on picking it up. But he goes, bends, picks it up, and it turns back into a staff. Now, this is not God, like some adolescent, saying, hey, let me show you what I can do. This is God knowing Moses so thoroughly and so well in terms of what Moses needs in order to develop faith and to grow in faith and to follow him in faith that he begins to move in Moses' life in ways that stirs and builds that faith. And he's still stuttering, but he goes. Probably in his own thinking, okay, God's God, I'm going to follow him. This probably means I die. I go and tell Pharaoh, my God has said, let his people go, and I die. But I'm going, because this is God. And so he goes to Egypt. And uh, he's perplexed as he's beginning the mission of God, because he's like, okay, but you know what, Lord? When I tell the Hebrews... The God of our fathers has sent me with this message. He's going to set you free. They're going to say, the God of our fathers, what is his name? What am I supposed to say at that point? And God says, this is what you'll say. Look with me in in, um, Exodus chapter 3, and we'll pick it up in verse 13. And I especially wanted to read these verses, and you would especially want to mark these verses In your Bible, because these are some of the most important verses in all the book. And so in Exodus chapter 3, beginning at verse 13, Then Moses said to God, Have I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you? And they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, what did I just say to you about the significance of name. If somebody's name like Moses, drawn from water, speaks to the essence of who he is, that God's going to do a miraculous deliverance of his life so that he can make a deliverer out of him. If somebody like Jacob, which means supplanter or trickster, which is exactly what he did with his brother's birthright, then later wrestles and contends with God, and God says, now I'm changing your name to Israel, contender with God, wrestler with God. If somebody like Abram, who meets up with God, and God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and I'm going to make you the father of a great nation, and now you will be Abraham, father of a multitude. If all of those stories and more that we could talk about in terms of the significance of a name representing the essence of the person have that kind of meaning for us as they do, multiply that by a bazillion when God says, okay, you know what? I'll let you know my name. Because to know the name is to know the essence of the person. He says, here's my name. 
I am. Obviously, for us, that's like, well, it's just a derivative of the verb to be. What's the significance in that? Meaning, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I will do what I will do. It, it is an encapsulating, comprehensive notion of the vastness, the greatness, the depth, the breadth of God. Now, this becomes the basis of faith. Because to know God's name is to begin to know God and to trust God and to do life with God. This is a, I can't overstate how big a revelation this is. And they got it because the word became so important to them, they wouldn't even pronounce it. Now, the, the word that means I am is basically four consonants, roughly in our language, Y-H-W-H. Theologically, it's been referred to as the tetragrammaton. And there were no vowel pointings with it, so we really honestly don't know how to pronounce it today because the ancients wouldn't pronounce it. There you see it in the Hebrew characters. So when a Hebrew scribe was in the process of creating written copies of ancient biblical texts, here's what would happen. There would be a lead scribe on a seat who would be reading the text in the hearing of other scribes who were making copies of the text. And every time he came to... Y-H-W-H, the name of God, he would say Adonai, which means Lord. He would not even pronounce the name that God gave to Moses and revealed to the people because it was that sacred. So if you look, I think, in verse 15 of the text that we just read, you'll see a reference to what the Lord said and the L-O-R-D is all in caps. Now, there are other places in the Bible where you will see Lord written like this, capital L, lowercase O-R-D. And when you see that word, it just simply means Lord. But when you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it's literally these four consonants. And uh, even in the English today, there's still that tradition of not using this word, this name, but rather Adonai or Lord. So uh, at some point in history, scholars took the vowels that go with Adonai and ascribed it to Y-H-W-H, and they come up with the word Yahweh. You anglicize that. And it becomes Jehovah. And that's where those words are what those names refer to. It's this ancient revealed name of God. I am. Yahweh. Jehovah. Say all that to say this. And the psalmist got it 
in Psalm 910 when he put it this way. The people who know God's name will trust him. Now, in order for that verse to be meaningful to you, you have to get out of contemporary American thought where name is basically a tag. So that we're not constantly saying, hey, you. We say, hey, Joe, hey, Bill, hey, you know, whatever your name is. But basically for us, it's a tag. And you have to get out of that thinking and into the ancient Hebrew thinking to know God's name, not as tag, not what am I going to call him, but who he is, is to trust him. You struggle with trusting God. The point is, you haven't gotten to know God. How does someone go about knowing God? Well, you begin to look at the revelations of God. What has He showed you about Himself? How has He disclosed Himself? And the readings of this coming week are loaded with disclosures of God so that you know His name. Um. Which leads us in the fourth place. He is going to, over these readings that you're about to get into, build a case for faith. He's not going to ask you to take a leap in the dark. He's going to invite you to take a step into the light. Let me show you. Let me show you. Let me show you. Let's go. And as he builds his case for belief, it's all around the story of the Exodus Because uh, the Hebrew people are being oppressed. The Hebrew people are in slavery. God has heard their cries. He has remembered his covenant with them. He is going to deliver them and lead them to a promised land where they will be able to prosper and have uh, farms and provide for their families. And primarily it's about being in a place where they can know God well. And he tells Moses... This is what I'm going to do. You tell the people, because I want them to know as I'm doing it, I already told them I was going to do it. And so he goes and he tells them, and they were like, what? And who are you, by the way? And they struggle. You ever struggle? Then he goes to Pharaoh, and he tells Pharaoh the same thing. And, you know, the God of our fathers has called me to come and give this message to you, set my people free. And Pharaoh's like, you're nuts. Ain't no way that's happening. Because now, after all these years of Hebrew slavery, they are central to the Egyptian economy. You don't just kiss goodbye the engine that creates uh, all this economic prosperity in your country. Ain't no way they're going. And so Moses says to all, okay, well then God's going to show you who he is, and therefore you will respond to him appropriately. And there are a series of ten miracles, right? And you're familiar with these, and you'll be refreshed as you're into all of this. But uh, he is going to cause the Nile River to turn into blood. Huge. Then he's going to send this, like, plague of frogs. Can you imagine the land just covered with frogs? Then he will send, you know, this swarm of gnats and flies and locusts, and he'll cause it to rain down hail, and people will break out in boils, and there's all these 
you know, just bizarre, wild things going on. And again, it's not because God is some kind of adolescent that's just like, watch me, see what I can do. But he is doing manifestations to help build faith. And then you get down to the last one. And uh, he gives a warning. Moses tell Pharaoh, there's going to be one more display of my power. And I'm giving him a warning so that he can respond appropriately. If he does not say yes, and I will set the people of God free, then I will bring death to the firstborn of everyone in the land. And so Moses went and told Pharaoh. And with every act of God, Pharaoh was not becoming more inclined to believe. He was becoming more hard and hard and hardened toward God. And with this final warning... He was so hardened at that point, there was no way he was going to respond. So Moses sees that Pharaoh's going to say no. God's going to come through with what God said he's going to do. So he goes and he tells all the Hebrews, here's what God's going to do. He's going to bring his presence through the land tonight. And his presence will bring death to the firstborn of everyone in the land, except those who believe. And here's how you will demonstrate your belief. You will go and kill a lamb. You will take the blood of that lamb into a basin. You will then take a branch of hyssop. And you will uh, get that branch covered in blood. And then you will go to the doorpost of your home. And you will wipe that lamb's blood on the doorpost of your home. And then you get in your house. And you stay in your house all night. And no matter what you hear, don't you dare come outside. Because as God's deadly presence is coming through the land, everyone who is in their home covered by the blood of the Lamb will be passed over by God's deadly presence. Obviously, this was the foundation of the most important Hebraic feast, the Passover. And it all transpired exactly as God said it would happen. Those who were beginning to believe took the risk, did the bizarre thing of killing a lamb, getting the blood, you know, spreading it over the doorpost, and they were delivered. And the Egyptians couldn't get rid of the Hebrews fast enough after that. Get out of here. And not only that, they sent them out with all kinds of jewels and, and, and uh, gold and silver and basically funded their departure to be able to go into the next chapter that God had for their lives. Now, let's take a few moments to reflect on this. When God is doing all of these manifestations, again, with every line that you read in the text, as you're seeing and hearing between the lines, it's almost like, will you believe? Will you believe? Will you believe? Will you believe? And many do. And they put the blood of the Lamb over the doorpost. You fast forward that thousands of years to the time of Jesus, 
And as the puzzle pieces of the jigsaw began to come together, you see, not only was God doing some mighty, mighty act way back in ancient history, but he was foreshadowing all that he was going to ultimately do for humanity. Because all of humanity is enslaved. And our taskmaster is not one Egyptian nation. Our taskmaster is sin. And we're all enslaved. And we all will perish in that kind of slavery unless God delivers us. And God has sent a deliverer, one who is greater than Moses. And his name is Jesus. And similarly, if you will believe to the point that you will take a lamb and its blood and put it over the doorpost of the house that you live in, your heart, then he will pass over at the time of his condemnation and his judgment of all humanity's sin. He will pass over your life in that kind of way and you will be saved. And the New Testament goes on to say Jesus is that lamb. He's not only the Moses-type deliverer, he's also the lamb that is slain. It's his blood over the doorpost of our hearts. And he does a work that frees us for a promised land out of this world. And these things took place thousands of years before the time of Jesus. You say, really? I mean, that kind of foreshadowing is taking place? Yes. And Jesus absolutely played into that. So every time Jesus was going about doing mighty works, doing miracles, which the Gospels are loaded with, it was not a time to show off. It was not a time to just do a little uh, dog and pony show. It was to say, this is the working of God in your midst. And to make sure that good Hebrews could get it, he said, by the way, that's my name. I am. And so he would do a mighty work and he would say, I am the bread of life. He would do another mighty work and he would say, I am the light of the world. He'd do another mighty work and he'd say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me because I am. What do you do with that? And if this is fairly new to you, it's a lot to digest. And so I want to make these suggestions to you. First, will you consider the evidence of what we've been talking about? Do the readings of this week and the, in, the, in the weeks to follow. Read some of the commentary. Have conversations with friends in your small group. Consider the evidence. Look at the weight of the evidence. Dare even pray. God, show me. Help me to see something. In the second place, I'd suggest that if you you come to a point of belief, and many of you in the room have already come to that point, then don't keep the story, don't keep the belief to yourself. Because this is good news. Jesus called it 
Good news. And so share the story of belief with others that are around you. And invest yourself in ways that that story can be shared around the world. And then my third suggestion is, if you believe it, if you're living it, celebrate it. Celebrate it with the worship of God, not just when we gather on Sundays, but in a day-by-day kind of way. Celebrate it by recounting the works of God that you get to see day-by-day. And celebrate it the way Jesus instructed us to celebrate it with the Lord's Supper. As Jesus was preparing to go to the cross, and he's having a last supper with his disciples, you remember what that last supper was? It was a Passover meal. And Jesus took that ancient Passover meal and gave it altogether new meaning. And he said, by the way, this is what this Passover meal now means. This bread is my body given for you. This cup is now my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Celebrate all that God is doing and showing and delivering and saving By the receiving of bread and by receiving of this cup in my name, remembering me, memorializing me, celebrating me. So, as share group leaders, uh, I'd invite you to think about this seriously. I'd encourage all of our small groups to have the Lord's Supper together this week. In your small group. Talk about some of the readings of the week. Reflect on some of the things we've talked about this morning. Maybe have a brief New Testament reading around the Last Supper. And receive communion together. Will you weigh the evidence? Will you share the story? Will you celebrate the person and the works of God? Let's pray. Lord, when we take in more of the story and when we have more of the picture in focus, it is awesome. We are awed at who you are and the comprehensive way you have addressed all of life. And we worship you. And as we've been singing today, we will follow you. So that where you go, we'll go. Where you stay, we'll stay. Whatever you say, we will follow. Because you are God. And there is none other. And only you are worthy of the giving of a life that we have to give to you. In Jesus' name, amen.